Our Father, we thank you that you are the ruler over all the works of your hands and that we can uh, look to you for care and um, preservation in the midst of storms. And we uh, pray that we would take such kindness um, uh, as a calling to be good stewards of such privileges and to be ready to help others when they are in need. Um, And we thank you now for the storms quieting and for the opportunity to return, as it were, to the upper room this evening and to continue on these uh, precious meditations that Dr. Ferguson has provided for us. And may they um, fulfill the end that he dearly hopes for, that is, that we would come to know and to love our Savior more in the remarkable ministry that he had uh, at the close of his life, and how that care for the disciples, uh, then with his ascension and pouring out of the Spirit, led to uh, these men being fitted to be used of you to turn the world upside down. And we're, we're, we're grateful that we're a, a par- part of the fruit of that labor, and pray that in our generation we would help that to continue. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. As we typically do, um, any lately hatched concerns about last week's chapter? Anything you've thought about or been um, uh, questioned further since we were last together? All right. Um, Hearing none, then let's turn to tonight's chapter, Atmospheric Changes, and I'll read for us the text that is the basis for uh, the discussion. This is John 13, 31 to 38. When he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so I now also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Well, continuing in the high drama that uh, we have before us, uh, Dr. Ferguson's image is the curtain is now coming down at this point on Act One of the Upper Room. And uh, we have this extraordinary insight into 
Jesus and his sense of himself at this moment, and then the way in which he reveals his sense of his father, and then his needing to deal with uh, Peter in um, um, what must have been a traumatic moment for uh, the apostle. Um, Dr. Ferguson continues on with the metaphor of atmosphere, um, that the atmosphere in the room is changing. Uh, We've seen instances of pairs that are at odds with one another, questions and answers, pride, humility, shame, joy, betrayal, and faithfulness. But in particular, our text notices a conjunction between Judas leaving the room and Jesus um, seeming to take pleasure in the thought that things being set underway, that the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Uh, It's as if the room has brightened, even though Judas is leaving, means the die is cast, as uh, Dr. Ferguson puts it, that um, uh, things are going to move from here in a way with respect to which there is no turning back. So there are two main parts to this chapter. Um, uh, The first, uh, entitled Glorified, and the second, uh, Change in Atmosphere Again. Um, With respect to... uh, glorification the uh, we feel the striking shift from seeing Jesus troubled in spirit to now uh, speaking about his glorification and um, if he had been refrained restrained earlier because of Judas's presence and we we all know how sometimes someone's present in a room and because they're there we don't feel entirely free to speak our heart and mind or to act as we might because of the constraints put by uh, animism, animosity. Um, But now with Judas Judas being gone, um, Jesus speaks, uh, and he speaks concerning glory. And John reminds us, or Dr. Ferguson reminds us, John has set this stage from the very prologue of his gospel. He had spoken of how uh, the word became flesh and we have seen his glory. And throughout the gospel at different stages, Dr. Ferguson points out, we've had little glimpses of the glory that John was talking about. Uh, Slow and uh, incremental manifestations of it. But now we come to the fullest revelation yet. Um, The uh, fullest revelation in his crucifixion, um, which is the prelude, the beginning of the glorification that um, will come into really its own with his resurrection glory. Um, So... the cross itself is part of the glorification of Christ, and that may seem shocking to us. We might, uh, typically, we would think of uh, the cross as part of his humiliation. But uh, to good effect, John cites the scripture that uh, it was said that Jesus would be lifted up 
on the cross, and it would be from there that he would draw all people to himself. But he wants to explore a little more about what it means to be glorified. Um, the, uh, and he has two points under this section. The first, uh, understanding what he, it means that he's glorified as the Son of Man. And the second point is how the Father is glorified in Jesus' ministry. And the clue uh, is that title, the Son of Man. Um, Jesus is the Son of God and Son of Man, as Dr. Ferguson says on page 48. But it's uh, a title, Son of Man, that just doesn't refer simply to his humanity. And Dr. Uh, Ferguson notes that in the main, almost uniformly, Jesus is the only one who refers to himself as the Son of Man. And he notes that um, the phrase can be used just generically as people created, referring to people created in, in the image of God. But the thing that is most striking is that he turns our attention uh, to Daniel, uh, the vision that Daniel had uh, contained in chapter 7 of the book that bears his name. And that was the vision of God on his throne in heaven, and there comes before God uh, an extraordinary figure uh, on page 42, or page 49 in the middle. Uh, there came one like a son of man. He was presented to him, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom. An everlasting kingdom, we learn. A kingdom that will be everlasting and all dominions. Uh, shall serve and obey him. Now, in a very interesting way, Dr. Ferguson ties this moment in Daniel all the way back to Genesis and then brings it forward uh, to the end of Matthew's Gospel. I think it's quite striking. I hope you uh, got the force of his argument that in Genesis we learn that uh, God created man in his image, male and female, uh, to reflect his character and to exercise a rule on his behalf over the earth. But the fall brought this to a catastrophic end, at least on the face of it. And what Daniel sees, he argues, is how God is bringing about a glorious reversal to this, um, and that uh, he, he thinks of Jesus meditating on the promise of Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, and um, that, in fact, this points to his own person and work. Uh, but this is not the only image that's there. In fact, there are several. There's the priest after the order of Melchizedek and the prophet like Moses and a king like David, a suffering servant that Isaiah foresaw. So the son of man in Daniel's vision, uh, all of these will merge together in the apostles' understanding of who, who Jesus is 
And they merge together in that way because they merge together in our Lord's understanding of himself. Um, Thus, while the Son of Man refers to Christ in his human nature um, and his humiliation as the suffering servant, it also, on page 51, has in view particularly his exaltation at the right hand of the Father and the expansion of his kingdom after he defeats the great enemy of his people. Um, the, um, and thus the Matthew passage, because of his victory on the cross and his vindication in the resurrection, all authority on heaven and earth uh, is given to me. So you see these three passages um, all having echoes of the same idea Matthew 18, 18, Jesus said to them, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Daniel 17, 7, 14. To him, this is the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples and nations and languages would serve him. Psalm 8, 6. Here now with respect to man contemplated as created, but of course uh, the fall undid all of this. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. And this tied back then to Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion. Here Christ is the great second Adam, the one who is appointed to fulfill what the first Adam had failed to fulfill. And the one who would bring into fruition all of the different offices that were used by God in redemptive history up until that point to move forward his redemptive plan, to have them be united in his son. Um, So this is um, a very powerful term, and it's interesting that um, uh, Jesus turns to it here when he's talking about being glorified, uh, that the Son of Man is going to be glorified. And Dr. Ferguson nicely ties that to Hebrews 12, 2, where you remember the writer of Hebrews said that it was for the joy that was set before him that he ran the race, despising the miseries of the cross. And Dr. Ferguson is wanting to say at this moment, that joy is coming home to Jesus in particular. Um, And he knows that as the Son of Man, he is soon to be at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Uh, And therefore, he's he's emboldened and heartened for the great work that lies before him. Um, Thus, the glorification of the Son in this moment, in in the uh, self-understanding that comes to fore after the darkness of the betrayer has left the room. The second point begins on the bottom of, well, let me, let me pause there. Anyone a question or a thought, a comment, um, reflection on any of this? It is some remarkable richness in the way uh, scripture history and passages are being tied together. I, I hope it was uh, as interesting to you as it was to me.
Any questions or comments? All right. Well, um, one thing we want to be sure and do is um, to try and preserve the richness of what we've seen in um, the significance of the Son of Man title in our own sensibilities with respect to Jesus um, uh, so that that fullness and richness is reflected in our relationship with him and how we think of him and what we look to from him. Well, the second point then, uh, the Father is glorified. Um, Jesus will be glorified as the Son of Man, bottom of page 51, and his Father will be glorified in his obedience. Uh, This point uh, is uh, pervasive in John's presentation of Christ's life, uh, that Jesus was deeply conscious that the Father had sent him uh, and that his calling was to to have his Father's will be his meat and drink, uh, the guide for his life. Um, and the uh, um, the fact that he was willing to be obedient unto death powerfully shows how great a father must be to be worthy of an obedience that had uh, no limits whatsoever. Uh, another uh, powerful po- point, I think. Um, so... Um, the crucifixion, soon to be followed by the resurrection, where uh, Jesus would be declared the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness in the resurrection from the dead. That's the immediacy that um, Jesus has in view. But Dr. Ferguson wants to say there's more to it than that. Um, and on uh, about the middle of 52, he begins to um, elucidate some of the paradoxes that are a part of this narrative um, all along the way. Because he points out that all of those whose role it was to be part of finding Jesus guilty and crushed constantly are forced to acknowledge that he is not guilty. Uh, This includes the Sanhedrin, Pilate, uh, the crowd who was crying out uh, for his execution, he, uh, the criminal that uh, confessed that Jesus had done nothing wrong, and su- summing it all up, this extraordinary confession of the centurion in charge of his execution, uh, who in Mark fifteen thirty nine says, truly, this man was the son of God. This is the powerful dynamic that's found in the narrative here, that on its face, it's all in opposition and um, uh, fury with respect to Jesus. But the very opposition is a, a, a layer under that. Constantly, one of the chief witnesses to Jesus's complete innocence. Uh, I love Dr. Ferguson's phrase on the bottom of 52. Those who condemned him became the mouthpiece of another verdict that will be publicly announced by God in his resurrection. Um, his, both his sinlessness and his complete obedience will be made manifest at that time.
So, on page 53, this undercurrent, um, Dr. Ferguson had said it was like a coded message. And this is beautiful. He asked, if Jesus wasn't dying for his own sins, if that's the message, then for whose sins was he dying? And here we come to the heart of uh, the gospel. Uh, In Christ, God was not counting their trespasses against them. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. The Declaration of Innocence is so critical because if he's not innocent, he could only die for his own sins. But because he is completely innocent, uh, he can be the sacrifice for the sins and payment for the sins of others. Um, This is transformative then with respect to the cross. Um, Dr. Ferguson has the lovely quote there from And Can It Be, the beautiful Wesley hymn. And in the paragraph that follows it, he, he drives this point home. There's a logic to the gospel. And that logic is not consistent with seeing the cross as merely a sentimental, sad, discouraging business where a person um, is being abused and we, we, we feel the tragedy of it all. On the contrary, the logic of the gospel is that the crucifixion is the beginning of his glorification, and that's transformative. And again, the undercurrent of the opponents actually declaring the truth. So Pilate puts the sign on the cross itself uh, without uh, any desire to proclaim the truth. He does so, that Jesus is the king. And in all the languages of the Near East and the Roman Empire, declaring that message uh, unwillingly, inadvertently, uh, but nevertheless, truly. And um, the, uh, this vindication will be made more clear with the resurrection and the ascension, uh, more clear yet with the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, uh, and ultimately in its consummation when Jesus comes on the last day. But the point is, all of this uh, begins at the cross. So, page 54. Um, He turns to a wonderful discussion of um, the relationship between he and his father in this work. Um, The cross is, uh, Dr. Ferguson urges, the irrefutable proof of God's love for us. Um, That the cross inaugurated the calling of folk from every tribe and nation all over the world, uh, worldwide and an eternity long family. All of this is to the glory of the Son and this is to the glory of the Father. Um, this eternity-long family of God 
is, in fact, the father's reward to his son for all that he has done for his people. Uh, Thus, the glory of the cross. Jesus is not the victim, but the victor. And we are part of the fruit of that victory as it is spread throughout uh, the world and throughout all time. Um, And thus, uh, he's reassuring his disciples that reality is far deeper uh, than the agonies that would come, the ones yet to come in Gethsemane and Calvary. Now, here at near the bottom of page 54, Dr. Ferguson, well, let me press on to that. Um, Thoughts on this point about the wonder of what Christ was doing uh, to the pleasure of his father. How many of you have uh, thought this way about the cross? Um, The uh, unhappy way in which the holy day of Easter is uh, uh, regarded um, these days especially, uh, it, it is usually more uh, about um, the pain, the sorrow, the tragedy, the betrayal. Uh, the And since uh, <laughs> uh, Mel Gibson, it's about gruesome and grueling uh, uh, physical suffering and pain and, and so on, uh, there may be truth to, a little truth to almost any of that, but that completely misses what John and the other gospel writers are, their view of the cross, it completely misses Jesus' view of the cross. Uh, and I, I think it's helpful for us to have the, in Lewis's phrase, the clean sea, sea breeze of the ages blowing through our minds to uh, rid us of some of the sentimentality and um, defeatism that is so often associated with the cross. Jenny, are you, you're trying to get my attention. Right. Um, as you were talking, it reminded me that um, in our life, um, we can remember times when uh, there were hardships and we were getting through something but once we knew there was an end it did bring a relief and a joy even if we knew until that time when there was going to be relief um, there were going to uh, we did have a sense of more joy oh yeah that that's a yeah. great point. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. And then um, just, I'm in Luke now, and I read it, I, I wrote down a quote, and I can't remember if it's from Calvin or from Matthew Henry, but it's, it said, patient endurance of the cross always springs from faith and a genuine fear of God. For he who obstinately resists his sufferings and whose ferocity remains unsubdued has no claim to be rewarded for patience. Mm. Mm. Um, by receiving from God comfort in exchange, 
been a cross. Mm. Boy, that's a wonderful and, point. Yeah, and it just was um, such an encouragement, <laughs> again, because our society seems to think no one should have to suffer. And right. suffering is a part of our life, whether we're Christians or not. But as Christians, we know that it comes from God and His work in us to sanctify us and to be like Christ. Mm. And as to take up our cross daily, which we have been given a pretty... Um, Sometimes we feel like they're pretty stiff um, mar- marching orders. Yeah. Well, and in fact, the, this point that Dr. Ferguson is making uh, throws a little bit of a new light on that uh, calling to discipleship. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Because n- now here, if we think of this as the beginning of the Son of Man's glorification and it means that we are taking up uh, in our own lives the elements of that beginning of victorious glory when we bear the cross. Right. And it it should subdue our ferocity <laughs> for, you know, objecting to these crosses. Right, right. sufferings. Yep. Uh, because if it is that it's faith and fear of God, that's where we want to go. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Good point. Other thoughts, reflections? Dave, you asked a question. Uh, have we, do we think of Jesus' suffering and all the sadness and the gloom around the crucifixion as it being irrefutable proof of God's love for us, as a, as a sign of God's love for us, that that's, that that's why it happened. And my immediate thought was, yeah, but isn't that why we call it Good Friday, right? <laughs> isn't it? I mean, isn't that one of the reasons at least why we call it Good Friday? Because yes, this, despite the, the, the horror of what happened that day, it is to our it is to our good, ultimately, that that happened, no? Yes, that certainly seems plausible. I don't actually know anything of the historic root of that phrase, but I hope you're, I certainly hope you're right. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know either, but there, there's a lot of good news in what happened. Absolutely, that's a great point. That's a great point. David, it certainly filled out my view of, of the Hebrews 12, 2 passage that we're looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and just how what it seems like in some ways this chapter is, is exclamation. Uh, explaining the, the joy set before him. Like, yes. Like, and yep. how before that joy he endured the, the cross, despising its shame, and now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So I had never really 
seeing that Hebrews passage quite as fully. Yes, boy, I found that striking as well. Well, um, 54, near the bottom, Dr. Ferguson cites John 10, 17. Jesus, uh, in what uh, Dr. Ferguson calls an enigmatic statement, says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Um, And here we have this shocking terminology that follows, um, where Dr. Ferguson comments, far from his substitutionary death being child abuse, as has been claimed with breathtaking ignoring of both scripture and the entire history of of Christian theology. The cross is the high point of the love of this father and son. Now that I'm sure glad that uh, Dr. Ferguson addressed. It is a commonplace among the uh, especially uh, superficial intellectuals in their assault on Christianity in the modern period. This was a favorite charge of Christopher Hitchens, who was a brilliant man, but this was so incredibly, as Dr. Hitchens, breathtakingly ignorant. Um, um, Because if you knew anything of Christian theology, uh, anything of Christian history, you, you would know that John's Gospel teaches us, as he says in the footnote, that uh, It was the united purpose of the Father and the Son, and that at no time during our Lord's life or death did the Father cease uh, to love him. And um, in a a way I found a little curious, but also quite strikingly jarring, uh, on the top of 55, um, Dr. Ferguson imagines this funny little chorus um, that we sing uh, imagines that the Father could sing this. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. Uh, That the Father himself could sing that to his son uh, on the cross. And that gets at the reality of what the gospel teaches us and and not the horrible slander uh, of cosmic child abuse. Um, but you, you should be ready to face that kind of a charge if you talk with people who are hoping to build up their uh, um, arsenal against Christian teaching because it is a very popular thing today. Um I'll pause in just a minute, but in sum, here, listen to the words of the great uh, New Testament scholar and commentator William Hendrickson when he uh, reflected on this point. Whatever we think of Christ's suffering, we never know what to admire most, whether it is the voluntary self-surrender of the Son to such a death for such a people, or the willingness of the Father to 
to give us such a son to such a death for such a people. I think that beautifully captures the scripture dynamic and so pathetically sad that someone would so uh, um, assault that beauty. Kate, or Will, I don't know who I'm... It's me, Dave. Yeah. The, um, one thing I'm a little confused, it says, for this reason the Father loves me. Wouldn't, wouldn't the Father just love him because he's a perfect part of God? Um, it seems almost kind of mercenary. Uh, it's th- this reason meaning in his human nature accomplishing the task for which he was sent. That's pleasing to the Father. So it's not the whole thing. Oh, no, 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 not, not at all. In fact, it's, it's, it's something that's only related to the, his human nature and the mission uh, that he came into the world to accomplish. Um, but the fact is, it is highly gratifying to the Son to know that his Father is pleased with him. Thank you, Dave. Yeah. I mean, it's a good point. It's worth reflecting on. Um, It just reminds us of how um, we need to think carefully here because there's there's some complexity, but the complexity enriches if we think about it uh, rather than confuses or diminishes. Does that make sense? Yes, I, I guess a father wouldn't say, a, nor, a human father wouldn't say to his son, I, I love you because you obey. Well, I hope he would. Praises obedience, but you would think he would love him just because he was his son. It could be just one of those. Well, it's more than one reason, so that makes Yeah, or, I mean, don't, don't put them at odds with one another. It's not either or. Um, the, um, in fact, uh, oh, I wish I could remember, but I don't think I'm going to be able to dredge it up. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I'm going <laughs> to remember, um, do y'all recall Haile Selassie? Um, he was, I don't know, king or prince or premier of Ethiopia. Um, Emperor. Emperor, emperor. Um, And at least as I recall the story, his son was kidnapped. And um, uh, he desperately was trying to find ways to get him released. And the kidnapper said only if he uh, cursed his father and uh, the administration that he ran over the country. Uh, which he did in a public statement, videoed, I think. And um, so he was saved from death. Um, When the boy came back, uh, his father said to him, "Um, I love you, and so I'm so very happy that your life was spared. But I would have been happier and prouder at your death. In other words, he still loved that fellow, 
but he betrayed completely his father's love and care. And um, the wonderful thing is that Jesus was not going to betray his father's administration. He was going to fulfill it even unto death. Does that help at all? Thank you. Dave? Yes. Just to follow on that, um, just with, with, I think with regard to our relationship with God, and that's what we're talking about, is Jesus' relationship with God the Father. Um, we, without Christ and his sacrifice, are in the position that we can't be obedient children. Right. Right. And so, uh, with, God with, doesn't love us in that state. That's right. So it isn't he. He is our father in that he created us. Right. That we are his creation, and that's. I think that's where Kate's talking about. I mean, we have children, and they're sort of our creation. That's where I'm going, and in our created state which is born dead in trespasses and sin, God doesn't love us in the way that he loves us through Christ, because of Christ. So right. for God to say you, you, he loves us, he loves Christ because he's obedient, doesn't that take us to the place where we have to know that we can't be obedient without Christ? You see what I'm saying? Uh, not entirely. Um, no. Let me think. Okay. Let, let me think for a minute. Um, uh, so you're. Um, it seems to me you might be making a, a different point that. Um, Kate seemed to be troubled by the idea that um, certainly the father loves the son um, completely. So where's the add-on come uh, when he says uh, he loves me because I um, fulfill his will? And I think Kate's uh, underlying assumption was that it ought not to be possible to somehow increase that love and that's why I was trying to make the distinction about the incarnation that this was a new set of affairs where as incarnate now he was in a role where obedience was actually absolutely crucial to his mission right right because uh, no one else could have yeah, done that yeah yeah and that's where your point then comes in yes that uh, uh, if Christ hadn't been the second Adam who did fulfill the covenant of works, then any kind of obedience or that kind of love of delight from God the Father would have been impossible for us. Mm-hmm. Right. Because we do have the, the father and the prodigal son, and the prodigal son comes back. But Christ never did that. He didn't go away from the right. father. And right, right live a derelict life. That's right. That's he was, right. Oh, and so it's because the, 
that God the Father loves Jesus so much that we were completely without any um, benevolent love, but just complacent love, that we can have that relationship with Christ and God the Father. Right. We can, we're not doing that in ourselves, that we, okay, now I'm obedient. Does that make sense? Or, I don't know, but anyway, this is a, a fleeting thought that maybe had some relevance. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Great. Um, the, well, you know, I, I, we need to be careful here. I mean, Paul says it, that I make it my goal to be pleasing to him, whether by life or death. I mean, we we want the triune God to be happy with us. We, we yeah. want it. But he also said, "It's not I." Who yeah, 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 yeah. Both, but, but, right. both of those things are true. We have to hold on to both yeah. of those things. We can't yes. let one cancel the other. Right. I think our greatest weakness, though, is to think that we are doing it ourselves, and that's why he had so many encounters with the Pharisees. That certainly is a profound temptation. Yeah. All right. Um, where are we here? Um, well, in, in any case, uh, I, well, I left off with that Hendrickson quote, and I thought that was beautifully put. Um, the, um, so, <clears throat> uh, that leads Dr. Ferguson into a lovely discussion of the, of Psalm 24, and the uh, metrical version of it that uh, Scottish Presbyterians use to um, uh, at the Lord's Supper, and some beautiful reflections there. But we need to press on because our time's running away. So let's go to uh, page 56, uh, the change of atmosphere again. This is the last section. It's not as long as the one we've just done, but there are a couple of things that I think are worth underlining. Um, First is that Jesus starts in on a beautiful discourse um, that uh, uh, in verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you you love one another just as I have loved you. You are you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love uh, for one another. Now, the, this is uh, can be a perplexity <clears throat> because even though some people might think that the idea of loving others as at the heart of uh, faithful life um, is a new thing in the New Testament, of course, it's not a new commandment at all. The Old Testament is full of versions of such commands and that God prizes highly uh, his people uh, loving one another as uh, part of them being faithfully his. Um, So it's not a new commandment as as if it were coming first on the scene, a kind of novelty. And in fact, it's worth uh, looking, Dr. Ferguson referred, refers to it, but it's worth looking at uh, 1 John 2, 7 and 8, where um, John writes, Beloved, I'm writing you a new, no new commandment, 
but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So the, the, the point is, it's an age-old um, <clears throat> uh, um, uh, glory that God calls his people to love one another. But what's happened in Christ is that it becomes new again. There's a new force to it. There's a new urgency to it. And there are new circumstances with respect to which it is to be put in effect. As D.A. Carson put it, these are marching ordered orders for the newly gathered messianic community that is now going to be spread worldwide. Uh, that's the newness of it, and I think that is helpful to us um, to recognize that. Um, the... Um, uh, and in fact, Dr. Uh, Ferguson points out nicely, referring to um, an early th- uh, theologian, Tertullian, that this was a regular testimony of even the pagans uh, with respect to the Christian community. Um, and he quotes on page 57, uh, uh, pointing out, see how these Christians love one another is a powerful uh, apologetic for the gospel. And uh, um, that certainly ought to be in the forefront of our minds uh, when we think about how we are in the world and wanting to testify to the truth that Christ is the Messiah uh, by the fact that the Messianic community takes as a very high priority that we love and care for one another. But Simon Peter apparently uh, isn't all that impressed with the new commandment. Uh, he is uh, um, more disturbed uh, about Jesus saying that he was going away, uh, and uh, he wants to, as he has done often here, at least not explicitly, uh, but implicitly, rebuke Jesus and correct him. Um, the uh, and. Uh, In fact, talking about loving one another, Peter wants to say, look, I love you so much that I would lay down my life for you. And so um, here is, again, a jarring change to the sensibility of the passage. Um, uh, We're brought into the world where, in Dr. Ferguson's words, uh, the weak mistakenly believe he's strong, and the one who loves Jesus uh, is then told he will deny him. This is, um, uh, again, uh, it's kind of a whipsaw here. Um, at the bottom of 57, um, Dr. Ferguson notices uh, the saying of Augustine, found in the footnote fully, O Lord, hear me, look on me, see me, pity me, and heal me. You, in whose sight I have become a puzzle to myself, which is my weakness. Um, Dr. Ferguson wants to say that sensibility is 
um, a uh, sign of maturity that I know that I'm a puzzle. Whereas Peter isn't puzzled by himself. Peter thinks he knows who he is and what he can do, and he's ready to declare it to anybody, even to his Lord, um, that he's not prepared to hear the purposes of God that he doesn't understand and to have that cause him to examine himself um, and uh, uh, and grow and learn to be humbled by it. Um, and so Jesus is going to show him through some difficult times what he is apart from Christ uh, in the betrayal upcoming and um, in the paragraph uh, second full paragraph on 58 Dr. Ferguson reminds us that it's Christian calling to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings to be made like him in death Um, and he says that Peter had some sense of this but he didn't understand, actually, how hard it would be. Thus, quote, Jesus tells him that he will have to walk the road of painful self-discovery first. In what Ritterboss calls some of the sharpest words that Jesus has to say, will you lay down your life for me? Uh, now um, follows the fourth amen, amen in the chapter. Truly I say unto you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. How horrifying that must have been for uh, Peter to hear those words. Doubly horrifying because Peter knew well that Jesus uh, always told the truth. Um, he uh, On 59, Dr. Ferguson notes that... Um, of course, it, it ended up being spiritually profitable for him. He doubts that Peter ever forgot that scene. Uh, and both uh, in the prophecy uh, concerning Peter that Jesus gives at the end of the gospel and in the very reliable Christian tradition, Peter, in fact, did lay down his life for Jesus. But after learning the lesson of self-confidence, uh, leading to betrayal. Uh, His new confidence in Jesus um, led him then to the holy sacrifice of his own life on his behalf. Uh, And Dr. Ferguson urges us to think that we all have a temptation to share in Peter's immaturities. Uh, The one, two, three, four, fourth paragraph on 59 he makes his own confession. I have shared Peter's immaturities, his misunderstanding, his lack of self-knowledge, and yes, his failure in courage. You have too. But those these failures never need to be final if Peter's Savior is our Savior too. That's a lovely sentence, I think. Um, the... Um, uh, so um, <clears throat> the truth uh, is that uh, John's gospel only des- describes one 
disciple with the words, um, uh, the, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And in a nice little tweak, Dr. Ferguson said, this is usually taken to mean that he loved John more than others. But what if they really mean he was the disciple who discovered just how much Jesus loved him? And that is a hope that every disciple can have and certainly seems to have come true for Peter as well. Um, let me close uh, with, with this um, thought. Um, this is an important subject for us, um, self-knowledge, and a self-knowledge that leads us not to a, a, a brazen self-confidence, but a self-knowledge of our own weakness that leads us to a Christ confidence that sustains the soul. Uh, J.I. Packer uh, uh, wrote concerning the importance of the example of the Puritans. And one of the things he points out is this. Knowing the dishonesty and deceitfulness of fallen human hearts, the Puritans cultivated humility and self-suspicion as abiding attitudes. And they examined themselves regularly for spiritual blind spots and lurking inward evils. They may not properly be called morbid or introspective on this account. On the contrary, they found the discipline of self-examination by Scripture, not the same thing as introspection, let us note. This is of a character of what uh, the psalmist prayed for in Psalm 139.23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The Puritans were determined to let the word and the spirit be their examiner. Lord, you know me. Help me. For the Puritans, that self-examination was followed by the discipline of confessing and forsaking sin and renewing one's gratitude to Christ for his pardoning mercy. This was a great source for them of inner peace and joy. Uh, that's from an essay, uh, Why We Need the Puritans, in a book, uh, collection of those essays called a Quest for Godliness. It's a wonderful essay, and uh, I think it's a great uh, lesson to end on uh, because that's just what Peter has had to, the lesson Peter has had to learn in this uh, sad circumstance of um, his betrayal of Jesus. Um, well, thoughts, reflections, questions, comments on any of this that you'd like to raise? Well, thank you all. Could I, yes. Could I just make a quick um, point about self-knowledge? Um, uh, it's a very short story, but I'll make it even shorter. When I was in college, I got to hear Dr. Ferguson speak, so that was quite a while ago, um, and he did a series on the book of Ruth, and there were, you know, a good number of college students there gathered, and 
um, at the end of his talk, the leader of the Christian group that, that I was a part of asked Dr. Ferguson, well, what, what final word would you all, would you like to send off these college students um, if they go back to their studies? And he said, the seed of every conceivable sin lies in each one of your hearts. <laughs> and that wasn't exactly what the, the, the college counselor guy thought he would say, but it sure made an impression on me. Yep, yep, that's exactly right. And, and that self-knowledge is absolutely essential to growth and grace. Uh, it provides us both the sense of need, uh, the, the sense of uh, the impossibility of otherwise, and yet the great hope that uh, in regeneration, and that's a counterpart that I think Dr. Ferguson would agree with, that in the regenerate heart, the seed of every virtue gloriously come, coming to fruition is planted as well. Well, um, thank you all for coming. I'm glad none of you had to take a canoe or a, a boat to get to... I was a little afraid we might lose power. I was trying to think of how I would get around that. But uh, um, thank you, and uh, I'll, I'll look forward to seeing you next week. Let me close with prayer. Father, we uh, do have a proper concern that we know ourselves so little and that that lack of self-knowledge can be so destructive. We see it exemplified in Peter's life, and yet you are unwilling to allow it to destroy him, but to both by difficulties and by kind and cajoling words bring him to a greater self-knowledge which wonderfully empowered him to be a bold and courageous witness for Christ. And we pray that uh, we would have that same commitment to trying to know our hearts in the light of your word, by the direction of your spirit, to discover what um, ought to be put to death there and to discover further by your grace what ought to be nurtured and brought to life, that we might grow in grace to the praise and glory of our Savior. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.